right, everyone. Welcome back to the Be Well by Kelly podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Amy Shaw. She is a double board certified MD with training from Cornell, Columbia, and Harvard University. She was named one of Mind Body Green's top 100 women in wellness to watch in 2015 and has been a guest on many national and local media shows. She is a busy MD who focuses on gut health, inflammation, and intermittent fasting. So today we're going to go through her tips in each one of those categories. It is such a pleasure to have her on the show. Um, So welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thanks so much, Kelly. So excited to be here. Oh, well, I feel like you're probably really busy. I've seen on your Instagram, you're putting out a lot of information regarding the coronavirus. And I'm sure um, that's really changed your life a lot right now. Um, So I appreciate your time. Absolutely. I think as a physician with my immunology background and my uh, nutrition, immunology and medical background, I feel like it's my duty to kind of speak on these issues because there's so much confusion out there. Yeah, I feel like every single time I dive into articles on the internet or I'm jumping onto the news, uh, it's constantly changing. Yeah, it's a it's a changing situation. And a lot of people, unfortunately, are using this opportunity to kind of um, you know, talk about cures and miracle um, things. I think that's what's confusing to people. Like, okay, should we believe this or should we believe that? With your background, what advice do you have for people um, out there other than staying inside and washing their hands? Yeah, I think that, remember, Kelly, it's not just about, and you know more than anyone, it's not just about um, avoiding the virus, which we are actively doing here in the U.S. and all over the world. It's also about building a better terrain yourself so you can fight it off. Your army, your immune army can fight this virus off. As we know, there's mild, moderate, and severe consequences to this virus. And it seems to be based on your overall health. So if your gut health is in check, if you're doing a good job with your sleep and stress, if you're following um, some of the self-care guidelines that you've given to yourself, chances are you'll do better than if you weren't following those guidelines. So since you just touched on it, let's jump right in. How can someone determine if they have a healthy gut microbiome and what steps can they do to cultivate that health for the long run? I think that we have to understand that no matter how much um, testing is available, currently there is no gold standard for knowing that you have a healthy microbiome. For example, you and I can have completely different bacterial makeups in our gut, but we can both be super healthy and live healthy lives. Um, So that's really confusing because um, I think a lot of people think that there must be a way to check um, besides just the self-check that you have. Like, are you um, having a bowel movement daily? Are you experiencing bloating less than three times a week? Um, you shouldn't have bloating on a daily basis and constantly, and you shouldn't be uh, constipated for more than three days at a time. Um, and those are great, really quick checks. But then there's also other things. It doesn't just affect your um, gastrointestinal symptoms. It also affects like um, the way you think, like brain fog and fatigue, and it um, affects your immune system, like a low immune system, low immunity, which is so important at this time. It can also be weight gain um, and metabolism issues and diabetes. So there's um, a multitude of different things that our microbiome affects. It's not just um, 
the digestive system. But I would say that if you have any of those signs, so GI symptoms, brain symptoms, um, metabolic and hormonal symptoms, um, that could be a sign that your microbiome is off. So with your patients and your practice, are you really looking for those physical signs versus doing any stool testing? Um, or are you stool testing as well? I think that stool testings um, are often not helpful. I'll be honest. And because we put a lot of weight on testing in our society, like, okay, if you have normal testing, you're fine. And if you have, but with microbiome testing, like I said to you, it's so complex. You could even have some of um, the bacteria um, that somebody else has, but have different outcomes based on the rest of your terrain. So um, what I do is use it as one piece of data, but really it's a matter of, um, watching, listening to your body and seeing if your symptoms are getting better. So for example, one of the biggest ways to check if you're doing okay on the microbiome front is that your energy levels are good. Um, your hormones are balanced. You have regular stools and your GI system is working well, meaning constipation and diarrhea are not happening to you on a regular basis. So I think that those are um, good check-ins um, rather than the stool test. Great. So let's say you had a client come to you and he or she was dealing with chronic um, constipation or diarrhea, what steps are you taking to identify the culprits of that? Or what advice are you giving those patients? Yeah. So first things first, we want to make sure that there's no actual infection there. Um, you want to make sure that there's they have gotten a great GI workup um, to make sure that um, everything, there's no big kind of bacterial or viral or fungal infections that are noted. So that being said, as I noted to you, there's plenty of people, probably the majority of people who come to me are people who've already had that workup done and make sure that there's no obvious um, pathogen in there. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we start to look at things like diet. We start to look at things like lifestyle. We start to look at things, um, look at tools such as like intermittent fasting, look at tools such as, um, you know, supplements and things like that to add and subtract to the, uh, to the routine. Yeah, you're, you're definitely an MD who's known for looking at the whole person, including um, how they're sleeping, their activity levels, using tools like intermittent fasting, which I love that you're calling it a tool because that's what I preach with um, my clients as well is just how can they add things? And it's about adding and nourishing versus depriving and stripping away. And, and I think intermittent fasting is a, is a, really, is a really helpful tool um, there is a lot of information out there though about in, in, intermittent fasting not being the best tool for women. Um, but I've seen you use it with women. So I'd love for you to give your uh, advice and the advice you might have for women when it comes to intermittent fasting. How would they know if they're the right type of person to use intermittent fasting and how should they do it? Um, that's such an amazing question, Kelly, because I know that you work with so many women who struggle with intermittent fasting, and I have too. And I myself, actually, the first few times I started to do intermittent fasting because I read all the research and I said, wow, this is something I really have to add to my regimen. And what I did is what most women do wrong is that I jumped right in. I thought, okay, if I 
if 16 hours is good, 18 hours is better, I can do this every day. And what happens with women is we're very, very sensitive to um, starvation and to stress on our bodies in that way. Um, you know, our bodies are wired um, to detect um, starvation and nutrition uh, deficiencies very, very, it, it's very sensitive to that because we think, you know, we were wider to um, carry children and women will see that their periods are off or they miss their period or they're having um, other issues with their cycle uh, due to intermittent fasting. And what that's a sign, that's a sign that this is too stressful to your body. I tell women, I said, if there's a change to your cycle. That's a feedback signal from your body that this is either not for you, too aggressive for you. There's something off there. And so what I did is what a lot of people do is I jumped right into it. I was very aggressive because I wanted to be an A-plus student. And, um, <laughs> there's I the did. MD in you right there. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> Overachiever. Like, this, is, this is so cool. Like, um, and you know what happened is I desperately failed. I literally by day three, I was already feeling fatigued. I was already feeling like my cravings were off. Um, I couldn't sleep well. Um, I couldn't exercise well. And I was pushing through it to the point where um, I was not functioning. And so after about a week of this, I quit. And I said, there's something off here. And when I speak to women, often I hear that story that they did it. They did it aggressively because they wanted to see the results and feel good about uh, around it. But you, uh, but they noticed that it started to impact their energy. It started to impact their focus, their cravings, and often it can impact their cycle. And so I always say those are good ways to check in, um, check on, check in on your sleep, check in on your cravings, check in on your cycle. If those things are off. Um, you're probably going too hard. So that's my explanation of what happens with a lot of women. Now, there are, off, there are often women, a small minority, but there are definitely women who can do this and who can do this for long periods of time and come to me and say, well, why should I stop if I'm feeling good? And my answer to them is, if you're feeling good, your energy levels are great, your cycles are in check, um, your cravings are in check, then go for it. You know, I'm not right. blanketing every single woman in, in the world um, to, to kind of um, take it slow. So my advice for women is to go really low and slow and let the body um, and the hormones acclimate. So for example, what I like to do is circadian fasting. Circadian fasting means Take the body's natural um, predilection towards circadian rhythms and use that to your advantage. Meaning you may start, start fast after dinner and you may not eat another snack um, until... So you stop dinner at 7 p.m. and you may not eat again until 7 a.m. And set 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., just 12 hours, um, 12 hours of a break is even enough to start getting all the benefits of um, intermittent fasting and uh, time-restricted feeding. So what you start to do is you start to lower those insulin levels. You start to optimize that um, those GI cells because those cells in your stomach and intestine, they need a time to clean up and um, get reset uh, for the day as well. If there's constantly food coming in, it's kind of like saying when you have guests constantly and 
you never will get a chance to do a deep cleaning or clean up your kitchen because you're constantly entertaining. So time-restricted feeding will give you that. So start with 12 hours a day and then get used to that. And then a couple of days a week, I would say two to three days a week, you can push it uh, to a little bit longer. What a little bit longer can mean 14 or 16 hours uh, for most women. Hey, you know what? I love circadian synced intermittent fasting. I'm a huge fan of a breakfast at nine or 10 in the morning and dinner at five or six at night. I feel like that. And I never restrict or deprive. I'm looking to have three meals in that period of time um, and to feel full and satisfied, which I mean, in my personal experience and, and working with clients, it seems to work the best. There's, there isn't this white knuckling until two or three in the afternoon. It isn't, um, it isn't the use of excess caffeine and things of that nature. What's Absolutely. Your, yeah. I think that's the big thing is that you know the circadian rhythm science is so strong and it's coming out every single day how there's a clock in each one of our cells, not just our brain, right? And so we know that our bodies are actually wired uh, to take a break from food um, during dark, dark hours. And I agree with you that white knuckling it late into the day is usually not optimal for most people. What people end up doing is they end up overeating um, once they start once they start to eat and then they have trouble uh, curtailing that window to like, you know, 7 or 8 p.m. because um, their cravings and their energy is so low. Right. Trying to make up for it. Yeah. So what advice do you have when it comes to eating in the circadian window? What foods do you recommend that your clients eat? What for gut health, for inflammation? I know these are your specialties. So um, what lifestyle do you recommend the most and, and how do you optimize someone's gut health? Well, I mean, I know you're an expert on this and I think we can agree that eating between the hours of basically 12 and five, meaning, um, you know, Having as many calories of your day between the hours of 12 and 5 is always optimal so that you can have a breakfast, a light breakfast, and then a a dinner. But eating kind of a bigger lunch is what I like um, and I recommend to people. And I also um, recommend a really plant-heavy diet. And what that means is you know, 85% of your calories should come or your diet should be really um, pure, unprocessed plant-based foods and primarily vegetables. Like I like to say that at every meal, um, you should be having vegetables. Vegetables, as you know, have prebiotic fiber and prebiotic fiber is actually the food to grow the good gut bacteria. So it's like you're selectively feeding those good gut bacteria that are going to help you with metabolism, going to help you with hormone balance. They're going to help um, get you the right vitamins from your foods and they're going to help you fight um, pathogens. And those uh, bacteria need that plant fiber to be able to grow. Do you have favorites for supporting those processes, favorite vegetables that you always go to? Um, I, you know, I think that it should be varied as much as possible. Um, I, you know, personally love broccoli and cauliflower. I love the cruciferous vegetables, but I also love leafy greens such as spinach and kale. Um, and I think that the um, onions and garlic are a great source of prebiotic fiber. Um, leeks, asparagus, um, 
are great sources. But I, I don't say that you um, should limit it to any particular vegetables because I think we have good evidence that the more diverse your choice of vegetables, the better uh, food it is for your gut. So um, they found that you know in guts, in the guts of people from thousands of years ago, they actually had a very diverse set of bacteria, and they think it's because they were um, they were eating all this diverse sets of vegetables because of seasonal seasonality, just different availability of different strains of. Um, uh, vegetables, and we now are very narrow in the type of um, bacteria that we have in our gut. So, the more you can get, and the more varied you can get, uh, you should do so. That's why it's really great to go to farmers markets and get seasonal vegetables and try something new, because um, all of that can help. So, how do you keep the variety in on your plate and on on the on your you know with your family members as well what what tools and how are you taking care of yourself and your family um do you meal prep what what are you doing to to make sure that especially with a busy job like yours you're taking good care of yourself yeah that's a great question like behind the scenes question yeah. is like i often do like what i eat in a day kind of post because i think people need to know like i am not someone who has hours and hours to prep my meals. And um, I'm lucky to have um, a little bit of help in chopping and um, things like that. But honestly, it's super, super easy. What I do is I try to keep a routine of having two um, plant-based uh, meals, meaning plant-heavy meals a day. So uh, that means that there's like two salads or two soups or two uh, scrambles or two um, stir fries, uh, something that is just full of vegetables twice a day. And then I also have it as snacks. So something, uh, I'll give you a typical day. I love that. Um, I'm, this is my yeah. favorite. This is my favorite yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, totally. And just like you, I'm a big fan of the nine to five eating. So I think that if you can end your meals around 6 PM, that's ideal. Um, or even earlier on some days. So um, I basically start my day uh, usually with a tea, um, an almond, an almond milk tea, and um, I will take that to work with me, um, and that will be the start of my, uh, uh, sorry, the end of my fast. I guess I would say. So I'd start that at nine a.m. and um, usually that's after a fasted workout. So eight thirty or nine, I start to eat with a. Um, tea and then I'll have nuts and berries. I like, because what happened to me is I think what happens to a lot of people, I got, I did smoothies for a really, really long time. And then I just needed a break. Like I wanted to have a, a like, yeah, like a deconstructed smoothie. So <laughs> I have my nuts and I have my berries and I have my tea. And then, um, I will just start with that because I think that for most days, um, I can do that. Sometimes I'll have a chia seed pudding, um, or I'll have a you know a smoothie with um, plant based protein if I'm really hungry. Especially if I did a really hard workout, I like to replace protein within an hour of my workout. So then, um, usually at lunch, it's just a salad or a soup or a stir fry, something plant based. Um, with a few chips uh, along with it. And I like to snack on nuts or an apple at work. So I may have something like that. Um, and then 
dinner again, I'll have uh, one of my, our go-tos is kind of like a Mexican fiesta. Everybody kind of puts in their salad and their beans and their veggies, the grilled veggies, and they um, and you can put some salsa. And so you get a whole bunch of different vegetables. You get um, black beans. You get um, and then you uh, and I might have it with a handful of um, corn chips or something like that. And then I'll usually have dark chocolate um, right before I start my um, daily fast. And I usually do 12 hours on three days a week. And then I do a little longer on three days a week. And then one day a week is completely off. Meaning you're completely fasted or meaning you don't don't have restricted hours? I don't have any kind of pre-planned restrictions or it's just kind of like, Give, give myself a mental break from any of it. Um, and that's a nice way for people, if you're trying this, is um, it's a nice time to kind of have a uh, social dinner with friends and not have to worry about like, oh my God, this is past six or seven o'clock. Like I can't, you know, I'm not supposed to be here or just sit there and not have anything. I think the social aspect of time-restricted eating or circadian fasting uh, can be difficult for people. So it's nice to have one day where you're just like, I'm just going to do what I want to do and maybe have that social gathering and eat there. Yeah. I think flexibility is really important, especially with fasting because you do want to still connect with friends and family. I mean, obviously we're in a a time right now where we're all at home, but, um, (laughs) but being able to still connect with people and have that have a flexible day, I think also probably remotivates you when it's time to get back in. Absolutely. That's, a I think that's the biggest thing is that um, it keeps you um, motivated because you know that there's always a break. And there's always a time to be social. And then you can time that day off um, as you please, right? Um, and and I think people usually realize that they don't need more than one or one day like that. Um, the rest of the days, you can kind of like work around it. Absolutely. So when it comes to fasting and inflammation levels, have you seen fasting directly lower inflammation levels in your patients? Oh, absolutely. Fasting, if we do it the circadian style, um, people will automatically in two weeks, Kelly will say, all of a sudden I feel like I have more energy, I'm sleeping better, I'm lighter. So you'll automatically know um, that you're feeling better. We don't realize how much snacking um, we do late at night and how lethargic it makes you feel the next day. And so just taking that out is a really easy way to start kind of overhauling someone's um, health uh, plan. I completely agree with you. Most of the snacking that people do late night is on the snacky, carbohydrate-based, highly processed, acellular, you know, not yes, the, they're exactly. not the vegetable stir fries yeah. and salads and yeah, soups that you not, had all day long. Yeah. You're not having like salad, uh, you know, at 10 PM at night. What advice do you give your clients or your patients who have a problem, have, have snacks, snack sedents um, yeah. late night? What, yeah. uh, what do you have them do to avoid eating and uh, really get into the practice of, of fasting at night? Yeah. So when you start out, you will make mistakes and I still make mistakes. I often like don't eat enough dinner or whatever. And it's not a death. Like you're, I, what I say is like a a lot of people will say, um, well, forget it. I'm just going to have like pizza, you know, late at night. And, um, I just can't, but I say, Hey, if you can try like a half a tablespoon of almond butter or try like 
40 calories of fat, something with fat in it. Um, because we know that uh, fat is something that if you have it, it can still keep kind of the fasting processes, uh, chemical processes going on. Um, for example, something like um, autophagy, uh, it gets turned off when they sense protein or carbohydrate, right? So if you are having a little bit of fat, um, you may be able to get some of the metabolic benefits of fasting still. And so I say, start with that and then see how you feel because sometimes that, just that is enough to satisfy you and you won't need anything else. Um, Don't just go straight from, hey, I'm super starving and I'm just going to have a pizza, forget it. I want, I tell people like, take that small step in between, like um, drink a tea, um, have um, something. I say no artificial sweeteners, but you could have some stevia. So you could have stevia lemonade, you could have a tea, you could have 40 calories of fat and then wait and see how you're feeling before you go ahead and um, end that fast. And listen, we all we all fail. I fail all the time because it's not like um, you know you've still done a good job, even if you end up having a small little meal here and there. It's not a big deal. What I say is that it's the regular practice of um, ending your snacking late in the evening that can help you in the long run. Yeah, ninety ten. So exactly. Let's, let's go back to you used a big word. You used autophagy, <laughs> and you ex, and you said that fat um, is not going to end that process. Um, right. I'd love for you to explain the biochemical mechanisms behind that. Explain what autophagy is for everyone listening. I love it. I yeah. I, I like using fat. What I call fat fasting as a way to to keep ourselves out of the chip bag. So I'd yes. love for you to explain it. Um, you're the expert here. Yeah. So autophagy is actually means self-eating. That's like the literal um, term uh, of, of what it means in Latin. It's a, our body's way of cleaning out damaged cells in order to regenerate newer, healthier cells. Okay. So it can kind of like think about like a self-devouring process, although that sounds really bad, but really it's a great thing because it's um, a huge, deep clean out of your cells. We, we think it's like an evolutionarily uh, uh, self-preservation mechanism uh, that our body has created to remove the dysfunctional cells and recycle the parts of uh, the cells that need to be recycled and clean up that cell. So what happens after, once our cell goes through autophagy is if you looked at it under the microscope, it actually looks like a younger cell because how we age cells is through all the cellular garbage material that's uh, present in the cell. So imagine, think about resetting a s- cells in your body. I mean, who doesn't want um, to do that for not only for the benefits of looking and feeling younger, but also uh, really curtailing all the metabolic diseases that um, come with aging. I love it. It's like so, a, it's like a Pac-Man eating itself, or yeah, your totally. desk, desktop into your trash can on your computer and hitting empty. And I know all the women in the audience are going to love this, but it's literally a way of turning the clock back and creating younger cells. I mean. I feel like that's like music to my ears. So how do we create or how do we allow for our body to go through the process of autophagy? So 
you have to understand that there's always autophagy going on. Obviously, we're always um, trying to clean up ourselves. Um, but the problem is autophagy declines as we age. So as we get older, um, they're no longer able to um, uh, do autophagy at the level um, that they were when we we're younger. So this is why diseases happen, we believe. Um, cancer, diabetes, heart disease. Um, there's kind of like these defective cells, okay? So they actually think that autophagy or activating more autophagy can be so promising in so many diseases, including cancer, where you can say, hey, if we turned up the autophagy levels in people, maybe we can help them stave off these terrible life-threatening diseases, okay? Obviously, there's we don't know how to do that yet, uh, per se, with a pill or technique, but intermittent fasting um, and fasting in general is an amazing way to turn up autophagy in your body. Um, so, you know, intermittent fasting, also ketogenic um, diets, all uh, have been known to trigger autophagy. I would say circadian fasting is like the fastest way, easiest way um, to do this. Um, and uh, longer fasting and ketosis are also alternative ways um, to get into this um, autophagy state. So how long with the longer fasting, how long do you need to be fasting before autophagy really ramps up? And can you explain how it works from a ketogenic standpoint? Yes. So um, when... I'll take the second part of your question first, which is ketogenic diets. So ketogenic diets happen when we are eating very, very low glucose levels. So say um, you deplete your body of glucose. Um, the, the body will need energy from somewhere. So then it says, okay, the blood is depleted of glucose. Now let's go to the liver and take the stored glucose there because we always have some stored glucose there. So once they you once our body uses up the stored glucose there, they're going to have to metabolically switch. So the metabolic switching that happens, they say, okay, we ran out of quick, easy sugar. We need to get another source of energy. So what they do is they take the fat cell and they break up the fat cell and um, release uh, the fat cell and use uh, those fatty acids for... Um, for energy. And that's the metabolic switching part of intermittent fasting and ketosis seems to be the magic, seems to be um, really good for the body to be able to switch fuel sources like that. And once you've um, switched your fuel source, whether it's a short-term or long-term switch, um, your body starts to use fat as fuel. And what do you think about fat as fuel when it comes to longevity and it's metabolic byproducts, do you recommend something like ketosis for women, just like intermittent fasting or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this is, this is what I believe. Um, I believe in being able to eat tons and tons of vegetables. And what I find in um, people who are following um, you know, keto diets in general is that they're eating a lot of processed and unhealthy foods to keep themselves in ketosis. So I don't pressure people to um, stay in complete ketosis. It's very almost impossible. I mean, in my this is my opinion, obviously, but for me, um, as someone who is primarily plant-based, I find it really impossible to eat 
the vegetables and the food that I find that is really great for your gut and microbiome and also be in ketosis. And so what I say is that the busy woman's um, solution, which is basically um, is do plant-heavy diet, do circadian fasting where you can get those benefits, but in a short-term fast. Get that metabolic switching happening by after you finish your, say, 12 to 16-hour fast overnight, you do a workout and really ramp up that autophagy because a fasted workout is one of the best ways to ramp up autophagy. Um, now, we don't have an autophagy meter um, in our world. <laughs> there I wish we did. <laughs> yeah. How awesome would it be to just go and check like, okay, my autophagy, like people think that being in keto is being in autophagy, but that's not, it's not the same thing. We're constantly have autophagy going on. That's how we're cleaning up and we just ramp it up with exercise. It gets ramped up with intermittent fasting. And so um, there's really no way of knowing when that switch is happening. What I have started to do, um, which advanced fasters can consider, is doing a 24-hour fast because I know that at around a 14, 16-hour, depending on how many carbs or how much sugar you've had in the last week, you you start to ramp up that autophagy. And definitely at 24 hours, you ramp up that autophagy. So what I've started to do is once a month, I do this thing like a 24-hour fast. It's based on actually Mormon Sunday fast. So Mormon Sunday fast has been studied in many, many articles looking at um, the health benefits and they found lower inflammation levels. They've had lower heart disease, um, huge differences. I mean, mortality benefit. And so what the Sunday fast the Mormons do is once a month, um, they uh, skip at least two meals in the day. So it's like you eat dinner, say on a Friday night, and then you wouldn't eat until dinner again on a Saturday night. Um, And so it's like skipping two meals in between. And so often it ends up being about 24 hours. Um, And that's a great way if you're an advanced faster and you've uh, to kind of say like, hey, I want to kind of ramp up that autophagy in my body. uh, that's That's a strategy you can use. That's great. I feel like once a month is attainable for people if they become metabolically flexible. I think yeah. that's the key is understanding understanding blood sugar, understanding glucose levels and insulin and ketone levels, even if you're using a ketometer or a glucometer, just so that you're not going from a, a high glycemic place and high blood sugar place to deciding that you're going to fast. And I feel yeah. like that can be really hard on people. Yes. Um, that's, I think that's the biggest thing is really getting metabolically flexible. If you can just do that part, oh my God, so many benefits start to happen. Definitely. And I completely agree with you when it comes to doing ketosis the right way and really not foregoing the plants. There are so many yeah. times where people start writing off vegetables like carrots and beets and squash and yeah. all of these, all of yeah. these nature given, uh, like phytochemical rich beauty foods because they want to see their glucose levels, you know, plummet or keto, ketone levels go skyrocket. So yeah. it's, it's, and they'll have tough. like a ketone or sorry, like a keto dessert um, in place of like these amazing gut healthy plants. And I just, I just feel like that can't be good for you in the long run. Yeah. No, my favorite quote unquote, keto dessert that's also great for your gut is just 
avocado and cacao whipped together in a blender. Like love avocado mousse. Yes. So good. Love it. Love it. What, what are your what are some of your favorite I don't want to call them hacks, but tools for people who do have a sweet tooth or who um, you know, want to indulge without, you know, without creating inflammation in their body? That's a great question. I have a total sweet tooth. So I'm Indian and I grew up in a household where there was like snacks all day long. I think in it was like, you know, you had breakfast, but then you had a snack and then you had a sweet after every meal. And it was really hard for me to switch away from that. And so I had to think of hacks or tricks or tips that I could give to myself and others. Um, so one of the things um, I say, that that's why I like circadian fasting because I say, eat your dessert right after your dinner, early, early in the evening. And that way your body has a chance to kind of process all those, use up some of those um, you know, carbohydrates um, and energy that you have consumed before bed. So that means like I will have... Um, so what I do is I take Giardelli, dark chocolate chips, some really high quality chocolate, Hue Kitchen um, dark chocolate. I put it in the freezer um, and I break off piece or I'll uh, take the chocolate chips in a little bowl and I will leave the room. uh, Meaning if I leave the kitchen, I don't tend to go back to um, get more. And so I just leave and I enjoy the chocolate um, thoroughly. And I tell people, I'm not like a big wine person at the end of the day, which is shocking, but I tell people that they could do that with a glass of wine. You know, if if you just savor it, enjoy it, um, be have some downtime at, with it and then be done, you know, then drink your water, brush your teeth and be done for the evening. And so I think dark chocolate for me works really well. Sometimes it's, um, for others, it's like uh, a glass of wine. I also find that um, when I feel like snacking and I'm like, I love salty also. Um, I have these, uh, Again, because of my South Asian background, they have we have these um, little bowls that fit in like a spice rack, uh, like a little spice um, container, and they're like these tiny little bowls. I would say more like um, a bowl that you would use um, for nuts or something like that. And I fill it with um, what do the they call of- those trays in India? Like where you yeah, have, like, like the spice, the circular spice, yeah, tray, like little bowls inside. I have no idea. Like when I try to, I know the exact bowl, size. Yeah. And so that exact size, that little bowl, um, you can fit like, you can fit a good amount of like little snacks um, that you want. And sometimes if I'm really craving something salty and I'll, um, I want some chips or I want something like an Indian snack that's salty, what I do is I fill it up and I walk away. And really, because I just like you said, it's not about, you know, you can never eat those foods. I think that if you make yourself like so stringent and you really deprive yourself, it's it's really mental. It puts a mental toll on you. And I think if you allow yourself to have um, some treats and just keep it under control so you're not eating the whole bag, um, you're fine. Yeah. I think that physical ramekin or a small bowl yes. or something that allows you to portion without having to count or buy individual bags or whatever it may yes. be. That can be really helpful. And the practice yes. of leaving your kitchen, that's a great tool as well. Yeah. It's a great practice. So 
you sort of touched on it, um, but I want to go over a couple of things. Alcohol and caffeine. So you mentioned that you drink tea and you mentioned that you don't drink wine. What are your thoughts on both of those um, categories? I'm I'm a fan of both. Okay. Okay. Let's be honest. The Mediterranean (laughs) Everybody's going to love you. (laughs) Yeah. No, but I'll be honest. There's... The dose is the poison, Kelly, right? So like when you look at Mediterranean diets, you look at the blue zones, you look at the people who've lived longest and healthiest and happiest in the world. These are not, um, these are groups of people who enjoy alcohol, most many of them. Um, And some some groups uh, do not, but they're, I don't think that it's alcohol itself that's the problem. It's the dose and the, 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 the reasons for using alcohol that's the problem in our society. So, you know, if you require alcohol to wind down and to decompress and to feel better about your life, like that is a problem. That's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. But if you're asking me, is it healthy for you in small amounts? I would say, yes. If you're not using it and abusing it for emotional um, reasons, I think that it can be very healthy. So for example, moderate alcohol use has been shown to be quite anti-inflammatory and um, can be used in something, you know, it's quite low amount though. It's between like, you know, two and four drinks, I think for women a week, which is very little for many people, but that's what moderate is. Um, To me, that's what moderate really means. And if you're constantly needing way more than that, that's a bad sign. Um, But don't, I I don't think that there's anything wrong with staying in that low level. Great. I'm sure my husband will, my husband will really love uh, listening to this podcast. (laughs) Is he a wine lover? I'm an absolute lightweight. Um, Yeah. We'll open a bottle of wine once a week or once every other week. We're not big drinkers at all, especially post Sebastian and when I was pregnant and before too. But um, yeah, he'll open a bottle of wine and I'll have a three to four ounce pour and I'm a lightweight. So it's, I'm giggly and a lot of fun after that. <laughs> and then he'll finish the rest of the bottle. So that's hilarious. It's, uh, I, but it works because that's just all I need and that's all I, I want. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, that's perfect. That's just a little see, bit of fun. That you're just kind of um, showing people that it is possible to, because sometimes I'll say this and people will say, like, oh, that's impossible or that's not something I can do. Or so if that's not something you can do and for you, it just means like, you know, a lot of alcohol or none, then I would say none is better, obviously. Right. Um, And then with caffeine, it's kind of the same story. Caffeine is tea in particular um, and coffee too. Uh, But I think tea gets kind of bunched, uh, like grouped with coffee, but tea in particular um, has so many antioxidants and um, benefits beyond just uh, what we know, it's anti-inflammatory. So tea and coffee are really great tools as well. Um, and if and it's really ritualistic and it's really enjoyable and it raises happiness scores and all that stuff. So I think that as long as you're not going overboard and you're not, um, you know, for me, I'm genetically very caffeine sensitive. And so I cannot have caffeine past noon and that, but that's me. There's people who can genetically handle a little bit more. Uh, so I would say 
between one and three cups a day is something I would say would be a safe amount for people. Great. So as a tea drinker, what is the tea that you drink? And um, are you looking for like the highest polyphenol content or mm-hmm. is there, you know, how are you, how are you choosing? Okay, I'll be honest. I don't like green tea. I do drink it, you know, on occasion, and um, I enjoy it um, on occasion. But I'm just that's that's not hitting the spot in the morning for me. Mm-hmm. I like a chai with like almond milk and like nutmeg and cinnamon and um, um, and ginger and cardamom. And I love to make a spicy blend and just keep the spices all together in a bottle. And like, I just like throw it in there um, with the tea. And I use a, uh, a black um, Kashmiri tea, which is like to make my um, chai. I'm not really, uh, I like tea at other times, um, medicinal teas at all other times. But in the morning, I need that warm cup of like, um, I think like that cinnamony uh, warmth is something I look forward to every morning. And I think that that's something that's, uh, you know, personal preference, but I found a lot of people um, relate to that. And then, um, and then of course, green tea has like such amazing levels of antioxidants. It really is one of the healthiest teas you can um, drink. And so I try to incorporate, incorporate that a couple times a week, but I, um, and I do herbal teas as well. But I think that that morning ritual tea for me, the chai is like a non-negotiable. So are you blending your own like organic ground spices? And then yes. get, we have to get that recipe and share it in the show. Yes. Now. Yeah, for sure. No, um, I think I chai talk- is um, delicious. It's like a snickerdoodle cup, cookie in a cup. Yes, exactly. It's literally the easiest, um, you know, thing. Cinnamon, you know, you could put, uh, you could put anything you want, really. But I always make sure I have cardamom, cinnamon, and ginger on board, um, and then everything else is like, you know, if you have some, like a, tea, like a tea masala that my mom brings from India that often has like a like a black pepper even in it, and so it gives it like that spicy kick. It's really delicious. Yum. It sounds, you're making me crave chai right now. <laughs> so just a, a couple more questions before we close out today, because I know you have um, things to do, but you mentioned that you do um, fasted workouts in the morning. Is there a specific type of workout that you recommend um, and what benefits can people see from that? Yeah, fasted workouts is something that I um, am a huge fan of. So, do you do fasted workouts? By the way, mm-hmm. and yeah. my favorite. It's it makes me it makes me feel the best. I think so too, and I think a lot of uh, marathoners, um, the Kenyan marathoners, come to mind. Uh, they do fasted workouts um, to train their body to metabolically switch as if they were in a marathon. You know, where you're used up all the glucose. For me, it's the benefits are countless. So one is that extends your fasting in the morning. So I like to do it first thing in the morning. Um, two, you ramp up autophagy when you do um, exercise. So not only are you extending your fasting, which is also ramping up autophagy, but you're also exercising, which is a second, like independent way to increase autophagy. And you're doing that um, kind of with 
circadian rhythm. So if you're out, so for example, an outdoor walk first thing in the morning would kind of check off in uh, all those boxes and would be um, a really great way to multitask. So meaning that you're optimizing your circadian rhythms by getting some natural sunlight first thing in the morning or, you know, in the morning before 10 o'clock and you are moving your body to increase autophagy. And then you're um, also fasted, which also increases autophagy. So then um, you've done a bunch of anti-aging regimens all in one um, and you're done by, by the time you even like get ready for the day. I love it. You're getting a, more than a twofer. It's like a threefer. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh, Dr. Shaw, thank you so much for all of your time today and for giving us all of these amazing tips for women. I think from fasting to ketosis to fasted workouts, it can all be a little bit intimidating um, because uh, there is so much mixed information out there, but you are a trusted source and a friend and I really appreciate your time. Oh, I love your stuff, Kelly. I'm so honored to be on here and um, yeah, let's connect more in the future. I, I would love that. So one last question before we go and then you can tell everyone where they can find you and follow along. So the last question of the day is, what does body love mean to you? Wow, that's a tough question. Body love to me is not necessarily being stagnant in your goals, but really loving um, what your body can do for you um, and what where you're at right now, instead of always constantly craving for something more. Um, it's, it's being comfortable in your own skin and still working on it to optimize it. I love that. Always looking to grow and be better every single day. Exactly. Awesome. Well, where can we where can we follow along? Yeah, come. Um, I'm I'm often found on Instagram at fastingmd. So uh, I talk about intermittent fasting, gut health, all the updates of the uh, you know the COVID virus today. Uh, all everything and anything health related is often on my Instagram page. Um, I also have Twitter and Facebook and my website is amymdwellness.com. Awesome. And I did see on your um, website, you have some courses so people can learn how to fast. Yeah, exactly. We are we do a, like a guided two-week um, fasting program, which kind of goes handholds and helps people through um, the kind of circadian fasting um, and eating that I talked about with you. Awesome. Well, if you guys loved what you heard and you're interested in learning more, definitely head to her website, check out those courses and follow along on Instagram. Oh, such a good episode. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate your time and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Be Well by Kelly. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bewellbykelly.com and follow me on Instagram at bewellbykelly. I would love if you picked up my books, Body Love and Body Love Every Day. They're sold on Amazon and at all major booksellers. 